My name's Brad. Uh, welcome to Anchor. It's really good to be here together as a church family. And if you're new or visiting, we're really glad that you've made the decision to come and join us today as we continue our series following the life of Abraham, Abraham the Wanderer. I'm going to pray for us as we begin. So please join me. Father, we thank you so much that you have spoken to us so clearly through your word, that you have made such extravagant promises uh, to Abraham and to us, your people, and we thank you that you are unshakably committed to keeping those promises that you have made to us. Father, we confess that so often we are filled with fear and, and doubt towards you, and we ask today that your Holy Spirit might move us from fear to faith, that as we, uh, as we encounter the God who is so faithful to us that you sent your very own Son to die for us, that you would move us from fear to faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world of broken promises. I'll get it to you by Friday, I promise. I won't tell anyone. You can trust me, I promise. Tell me. Oh, son, I'm really sorry I missed your game. I won't miss the next one. I'll be there, I promise. I won't do it again, please. I'm not going to do it again. promise to be faithful to you till death do us part. Broken promises, broken promises. Broken promises are like broken mirrors. They leave those who hold them bleeding and staring at fractured images of themselves. Broken promises. We've all had experiences, haven't we, of getting our hopes up only to be crushed when someone lets us down, when someone doesn't come through on their word. But we're not just victims of broken promises, are we? We all break our word much more often than we care to admit. And living in this world of broken promises, it leads us to cynicism and to doubt. You know, I've been let down so many times before, why should I trust anyone? And then when you've got skin in the game, when something's really riding on someone's keeping their promise, when there's something that you really need, where you really need someone to come through for you, where your very life and hope depends on the promise, our culture of broken promises can lead us to fear. Are they going to come through for me? I really need this. As we walk with Abraham, we're exploring the tensions that arise as we live in the gap between promise and reality. And in that gap, we can be overwhelmed by doubts and fears. Is God really good when my life is so hard? Is God going to come through for me? Has God forgotten me? It feels like He has. Will God really forgive my sins? Because my life is pretty messed up. How can we trust God when we live in a world of broken promises? And as we look at Genesis 15 today, we're going to see two scenes where God's promises are called into question. In both scenes, God confirms his promise to Abraham with a sign, and Abram moves from fear to faith as he encounters a God who is unshakably faithful to his promise. And my hope and prayer today for you guys is that you will encounter this God who is unshakably faithful to his promise today and that the Holy Spirit will move you from fear to faith. So two scenes in this chapter. The first scene is the stars. 
where God confirms his promise to Abram. And the second scene is the smoking firepot. The stars, the smoking firepot. So we're going to read the first scene together. So open Genesis 15 with me, or the verses will be on the screen. We're going to start at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And God brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. The stars. So our story begins with Abram afraid. In chapter 14, Abram rescued his nephew Lot from tribal kings who were living in the land that God had promised him. And perhaps these angry kings wanted revenge. You know, if you humiliated the schoolyard bully, then you'd probably be scared about what he's going to come back at you with next. God appears to Abram in a vision and says, fear not. What assurance does God give to calm his fears? He says, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This is military imagery. A shield, a big shield to protect you from the attacks of the enemy and a great reward or it could be plunder from the battle. You know, Abraham has the creator of the heavens and the earth on his side. No matter how big the spears and the swords of his enemies, Abraham has no need to fear when God is his shield. You know, when, you're, when the schoolyard bully sees that you have LeBron on your team, he runs away terrified. With God on his side, Abraham should have nothing to fear. But he knows that there's a bigger problem than schoolyard bullies or angry kings wanting revenge. In verse 2, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. There's great sadness in childlessness, isn't there? As some of you know firsthand. You hope against hope that you'll conceive a child month after month, Year after year, nothing. And Abram and Sarah would have experienced this great personal sadness year after year. But in the ancient world, this personal sadness was compounded by social factors. You needed an heir to carry on the family name, to lead the tribe, to give honour and glory to the patriarch, to protect Abram and Sarah in their old age. And because Abram didn't have his own son, he's talking about passing on his inheritance to his chief servant, Eliezer. But the problem here is not just personal or social. Abram and Sarah's childlessness calls into question the very trustworthiness of God. Two weeks ago in Genesis 12, we saw that God made huge promises to Abram that all depend on Abram having a, a, having a child. God promised that he would make him a great nation, 
that he would bless him and his descendants and through his family that God would bless all the families of the, of the earth, that he would give a land to Abram's descendants. All of these promises depend on Abram having children. Now, it seems like Abram has lived up to his side of the bargain. We saw that he left everything. He left his country, his family to go to the land that God, has, God had promised. Abram's been faithful, but it seems like God hasn't lived up to his word. I continue childless. And so Abram blames God. You, you God, you haven't lived up to your side of the bargain. You haven't given me offspring. And you can sense Abram's fear and anger and doubt directed at God, can't you? He staked everything on this. He's left everything and it looks like it's an empty promise. How does God respond? Well, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get defensive. He simply reiterates his commitment to his original promise in verse 4. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And God confirms this promise with a sign. The stars. God says, come on, come outside, Abram. Look up at the sky. Now, if you look up at the night sky in Sydney, you might see a dozen stars, two dozen stars if you're lucky. But if you go out to a lookout in the Blue Mountains or out camping in a national park or out bush, out to the country, away from the town where there's no light pollution, there's no air pollution, you see thousands upon thousands of stars littered across the night sky. And the Milky Way lights up like a cosmic highway through the sky. Count the stars, Abram, if you can. Have you ever tried to count the stars? You can imagine Abram getting muddled about 973, can't you? And having to go, oh, one, two, back to the start. I was looking at an article this week. Uh, I googled how many stars are there in the night sky, and this article on the ABC came up where scientists have tried to work out how many stars there are in the observable universe. And I didn't even know this, but we can't see the whole universe. Apparently, our universe is 13.8 billion, billion years old, and so that means that we can only see 13.8 billion light years away. And so anything beyond that, we can't see. We can't see to the very reaches of the universe. And this article said that they estimate that in the observable universe, there are 70 to the power of 22 stars. Uh, so 70 followed by 22 zeros, just a ridiculous amount of stars. And God says to Abram, how many stars are there in the sky, Abram? That's right, you got stuck before a thousand. You can't number them. I'm not just going to give you one son. I'm going to make you into a great nation with innumerable descendants, just like you can't number the stars. Don't be afraid. Just trust me. This promise is too good to be true, isn't it? Abram's got skin in the game here, and can he trust God? He's afraid. He's got... Can he trust God to come through on his promise? How does Abram respond at the end of this scene in verse 6? Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this verse here, this is a really important verse picked up in the New Testament, a really important verse in the whole sweep of God's plans for his people. And so we're going to spend camp out and spend a little bit of time here, and we're going to break it up into the two sections of the verse. We're going to first think about Abram's faith, he believed the Lord, and then we're going to think about God's verdict, 
he counted it to him as righteousness. So starting with Abram's faith. In this scene, Abram moves from fear to faith. He takes God at his word and he believes that God will do what he has promised. But the thing is that the evidence, the evidence isn't good. You know, the evidence looks like they're not going to have children. His wife, Sarah, is barren. They're both approaching 100 years old. It's an extreme impossibility that this dead womb could come to life. Do you feel that? Do you see the impossibility of this situation? But the thing is that this is the God who brings the dead to life, and nothing is impossible for him. In Mark chapter 5, a synagogue ruler Jairus runs up to Jesus and he's desperate. My little girl is dying. Come, please put your hands on her. Pray for her. Make her well. She's on her deathbed. I need you, Jesus. He's desperate. And Jesus agrees to go with Jairus. But as they're on their way, some of Jairus' servants come and give him the bad news that his daughter has died. And they say, don't bother the teacher. There's nothing you can do about it. What does Jesus say? He says, don't be afraid just believe. Jesus wants to take Jairus from fear to faith. And the circumstances say, this isn't going to happen. You know, when your heart stops beating, they put you in the ground. It doesn't come back to life. This is an impossible situation, just like Sarah's barren womb. Now, Jesus gets to the house and there is weeping and there is wailing and there is distress. And Jesus says, why all this commotion? Why all this wailing? This girl's not dead, she's just asleep. And Jesus goes in with mum and dad and she take, he takes the little girl by the hand and says, little girl, get up. And the girl gets up from her bed. He raises her from the dead. And the parents are beside themselves with joy. Now, if our God is the one who can bring the dead to life, then he can also breathe life into this barren womb, can't he? If our God is the one who created life in the beginning, who made the heavens and the earth, who made the sun, the moon and the stars out of nothing, then he can also make children for this childless couple, can't he? Nothing is impossible for our God. The circumstances say it's not going to happen, but Abram gives more weight to what God has said than to what his eyes can see. This isn't a leap in the dark. It's a leap into the security of God's word, to the faithfulness and power of the God who has made the promise. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul reflects on Abram's faith here, and I'm going to read it for you. It's an amazing description of and reflection on this moment of faith in the life of Abraham. In hope, Abram believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abram didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Abram gave more weight to what God had said than to what his eyes could see. And what's God's verdict? Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness.
What does this mean? He counted it to him as righteousness. Well, imagine being in a courtroom where a judge is offering his verdict on your case. If you are righteous, then he acquits you. You're innocent, not guilty. You can go free. Everything's okay. If you're not righteous, then he finds you guilty. God is saying to Abram, as the great cosmic judge, you're okay with me. You're in the right. You're in a right relationship with me. Now, it's not that Abram's faith has made him into a good enough person that God can accept him. It's not that Abram's faith is some runs on the board. Abram doesn't deserve this. He's a sinner. He's a pagan idolater with a broken relationship with God. Abram wasn't good enough. There's nothing Abram did or could do to make himself right with God. This is a gift from God. This is all about grace. Abram simply reaches out his empty hands. Faith is the empty hands reaching out to receive God's gift. Jim Packer, a Christian theologian, writes this about faith. Faith abandons hope in man's accomplishments. It leaves all works behind and comes to God alone and empty-handed to cast itself on his mercy. And J.C. Ryle wrote that saving faith is the hand of the soul. The sinner is like a drowning man at the point of sinking. He sees the Lord Jesus holding out his hand to help him. He grasps it and is saved. This is faith, empty hands. See, Abram's faith doesn't contribute anything to make him right with God. Rather, it was the empty hand of his soul taking hold of God's gracious gift. All Abram had to do was take God at his word and believe that he'd come through. It's all about faith so that the promise might rest on grace. Now, the good news for us is that God's verdict on Abram's life, righteous, it's not just for Abram, it's for us as well. Paul again reflects on this in Romans 4, and he says, The words it was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake only, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that what God did for Abram, he also offers to you and to me. We're sinners just like Abram, with a broken relationship with God. None of us is righteous, and there's nothing that we can do to fix the relationship ourselves. The only thing that can fix this relationship is God stepping in himself. And God offers to freely justify us by his grace. You see, this right relationship with God, this justification that God offers us, it's free to us. We don't need to do anything to receive it, but it's costly to God. It requires a sacrifice. And God pays the ultimate sacrifice to wash away our sins at the cross so that we might have peace with God. Now, maybe for some of you, you might be afraid to come before God because you know how sinful you are. You don't need me to tell you that you're a sinner. You don't need anyone else to tell you you're a sinner because you look at your life and you're like, I'm messed up. And there's no way that I can come before God. My life is too jacked up. I'm not good enough for God. And so you live in fear and doubt and insecurity and it drives you away from God. But today, God wants to take you from fear to faith. 
just like he did with Abram. He's calling you to take him at his word, that God justifies the ungodly. He forgives the sinner. He loves you. And if you trust in Christ, then he declares you not guilty, righteous, and he gives you peace with him. So the thing is that we will all appear before the judgment seat of God, and he's going to give a verdict over your life and my life. Our eternal destiny, heaven or hell, it depends on whether we are right with God. So church, let me ask you, if you were hit by a bus on the way home today and you appeared before the throne of God, our cosmic judge, to receive his verdict over your life, why should he accept you? No amount of good works or charity or donations or prayer or serving on a ministry team here, none of that can fix your relationship with God. What you need is a gift. You need a gift of grace, a gift of righteousness to be saved. And God offers you this gift. He's offering it to you today, that you can be counted righteous, just like Abram, that you can be forgiven of all your sins. All you've got to do is hold out your empty hands of faith, saying, there's nothing I can do. I can't contribute anything to fix this. You've just got to grasp hold of the gift that God is offering you, that he is the one who can bring you salvation, that he is the one who can bring the dead to life. And he wants to do that in your life today. So that's our first scene, the stars, as Abram moves from fear to faith. The second scene is the smoking fire pot. And we're going to read this from verse 7. Genesis 15, verse 7 to 21. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years." But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So let's walk, work through this scene together. So right at the top, verse 8, Abram again has some doubts about God's promise. God how can I be sure that you're going to give this land to me that you promised me? You know, even though God has already given Abram 
victory over the kings living in the land in chapter 14, Abram is still not sure that it's locked in, for sure. And again, God confirms his promise with a sign. So God tells Abram to cut some animals in half, put them opposite each other, then it gets dark and a smoking fire pot appears and passes between the pieces. Now, has anyone seen an animal get slaughtered? Any country kids? It's pretty messy, hey? Messy, bloody. Abram, he's cutting animals in half and then arranging the pieces like some macabre interior designer in an aisle. This, this is weird. Does anyone else think this is pretty weird? This is bizarre. And it, and it, all right, so it seems weird to us, but for people in Abram's day who are used to ritual and sacrifice, they would have understood exactly what's going on. And this same ritual is explained for us in Jeremiah 34, and these verses are on the screen. And we see here that what's going on here is that this is a covenant ritual as God enters into a covenant with his people. And in Jeremiah, they cut a, a cow in half and then they walked between the pieces. And then God says this, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant, covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. I'll give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. So what's happening with this covenant ritual is as they pass between the pieces, they're acting out the consequences if one of the parties breaks the covenant. Just like when you sign a contract, there's consequences if you break your word. And walking between the pieces is like signing on the dotted line. You're acknowledging the terms and conditions, you're acknowledging your responsibilities to the contract and any consequences which you'll incur if you break it. Now, what you'd expect in, in this Genesis story is that Abram would be the one who passes between the pieces, taking on the consequences, the curse of the covenant if he breaks it. But Abram doesn't walk down the aisle. In verse 17, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch pass between the pieces. So what's this about? That's, that's again, pretty weird, right? A smoking fire pot, blazing torch. What do you think that could refer to? What does that represent? Well, the fire imagery represents God. Just like Moses encountered God at, do you remember? At the burning bush. Encounters God in fire. And then when Moses hikes up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments and meets with God, it was covered in smoke and the story tells us that God came down in fire on the whole mountain. Our God is a consuming fire. He's unapproachable because of His holiness. The smoking fire pot and the blazing torch represent God. And what does this mean? What's the significance of this? This is a unilateral promise from God. It doesn't depend on Abram at all. See, Abram doesn't need to walk down the aisle. No, God is the one who walks down the aisle. He is the only one who is bound by this deal. God is saying, may I be like these dead animals if I break this covenant. God is saying that he would rather destroy himself than be unfaithful to Abram. Can you see how unshakably committed God is to his promise? 
He wants Abram to know for certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he is committed to keeping his word, that Abram's descendants will for sure possess the land. But did you notice that it's not going to be easy? It's not going to happen quickly. They're going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years before God brings them out to possess the land. This sign that God gives to Abram, it means that if God doesn't come through on his word, then he's going to take the curse of the covenant on himself. One commentator wrote that you can almost see in Genesis 15 the nail-scarred hands of our covenant God. We have a God who would rather bleed for us than be unfaithful to us. When we break the covenant, which all of us have, God takes the curse of the covenant on himself. We can see how unshakably committed God is to this promise at the blood-stained cross of Christ. Jesus becomes like the dead animals on the cross. In Galatians, it says that he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Can you see how much God loves you? Can you see how unshakably committed God is to you? Encountering this God who loves you so much that he bleeds for you should move you from fear to faith. This was the experience of Jesus' first disciples. In John chapter 20, Jesus has just been crucified. He's dead, buried in the grave, and they're terrified, they're petrified. They're hiding themselves away in a room, doors locked for fear, fear of the Jews. They're like... If that just happened to Jesus, what are they going to do to us who follow him? And then through the locked door, Jesus comes in right in the middle of their fear. And he says, peace be with you. Jesus shows them his nail-scarred hands and his pierced side. He gives them his peace right in the midst of their fear. He gives them his Holy Spirit and sends them out into a world that hates them. Jesus knows that they're going to have trouble in the world, that they're going to be afraid. But he gives them peace, knowing that Jesus has overcome the world. You see, when the disciples encounter the risen Lord Jesus, they move from fear to faith. And I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't know what you're afraid of. I don't know where you're doubting God. I don't know how strong you feel like your faith is. You might feel like you're just struggling along, like you have a tiny, tiny measure of faith. But the key is not the quality of your faith. It's not the strength of your faith, but the strength of the God that we trust. You see, you don't strengthen your faith by trying to muster up something within you, but by looking outside of yourself at the God who was crucified for you. The more that we see how faithful God is to us in Christ, the greater our confidence will be in Him, not in ourselves. You know, we live in a world of broken promises, but we have a God who is always faithful to us, who has never broken a promise, who cannot lie. He has shown His faithfulness to us at the cross, where all of His promises are fulfilled, where all of His promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Encountering this God who loves you so much that he bleeds for you will move you from fear to faith. And my prayer for you, church, is that you might encounter this God 
who is unshakably committed to you, that you would experience his love and his grace, the forgiveness that he offers you in Christ, and that in response you would trust him through all of life's ups and downs, knowing that he is more committed to you and to your good than you are. I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your son Jesus and that he, that you love us so much that you sent him to die for us. Father, we know that you paid the greatest cost for us so that we might, so that we might be righteous, so that we might be forgiven. And we are so grateful. And Father, we've seen today how committed you are to us how faithful you are to your promise. And we ask that your Holy Spirit might might be changing us today, that where we are weak, that you would make us strong in Christ, that where we doubt, that you would move us to trust you, that where we are are afraid, that you would move us to faith. Father, we know that this isn't something that we can muster up inside ourselves, but this is something that you must do within us. So we offer ourselves to you now. We stretch out our empty hands of faith grasp hold of the promise, grasp hold of Christ. We ask that you would fill us now in him. Amen.